the Free Music Ed podcast. I'm Stephen Cox. I'm Gannon Phillips. Awkward pause. Awkward pause Phillips. This is his middle <laughs> name. And uh, today we've got a special guest. Our guest is Dr. Robert Tucker from Howard Payne University. This was uh, a gentleman who is a professor uh, that we've both had in class, both Gannon and I. And uh, some guy we really like with lots and lots of musical exper- experience. He is the uh, fine arts director uh, or the dean of fine arts at Howard Payne University. And uh, actually, let me let him tell you about himself because he knows it better than I do. Uh, well, I'm the dean of music and fine arts here at Howard Payne University. I've been the dean for eight years. But before that, I was the band director here at Howard Payne. So I've actually been here a total of 18 years. Wow. I was, I was three when you started at Howard Payne. Were you really? Wait, no, I wasn't. I just deducted four years off of my age. <laughs> I, was, I was seven. Thank you. Yeah. I forget how old I am. But before that, I was a public school teacher in Stanton, Texas, which is a small town outside of Midland. Stanton. Man, that's way out there. Yeah. Um, and then before that, I taught in Louisiana for five years at McNeese State University. And, and I, got, uh, I have a Bachelor of Music from Hardin Simmons University in Abilene, and I have a Master of Music from the University of Cincinnati, and I have a Doctor of Philosophy uh, in Fine Arts from Texas Tech University, and I'm also currently working on a Master's of Business Administration from Howard Payne University. So when, once I finish that, I'll have four degrees. Dang. That's, that's great. <laughs> Where will you hang them all? <laughs> Sad, I'm over there. Yeah, you're kind of running out of wall space. <laughs> That's true. You take down some of this abstract art. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, yeah it, for those of you listening who can't see, we're sitting down right now inside of Dr. Tucker's office. There is a, it's, it's quite kind of a cool office. There's a little bit of everything. Lots of books, you know, a, a French horn sitting around. Uh, because that's, is that, tell us about your French horn experience real quick, because I know you had an interesting career as a French hornist. Sure, I've been playing French horn really, feel like all my life, um, and, and teaching French horn too. I've played in many orchestras, I've played a lot of orchestras in Ohio and throughout Texas and Louisiana, and I, st- I still play, I try to keep, keep it up. I used to do a lot of recitals, I don't do recitals as much as I used to, uh, but I, I also play in church pretty often, and uh, and I've, I've dabbled a little bit in jazz horn and rock horn. Uh, but in the end, I, I, when, when I pick up my French horn, I love to play Mozart. Mozart. Yeah, that's probably my favorite thing to play on, on the French Like a horn. true French horn player. Yeah, yeah. Purest approach. Yeah. He, he was okay, Mozart. It was great. When I was a kid, my, my uh, parents bought me a record. Back in the old days, we had records that were made of vinyl. And they went round and round. That's and, weird. Yeah, it's very strange. And um, it's like an MP3. They bought me a, a recording of Dennis Brain playing the Mozart horn concertos, and I listened to that over and over and over. And I wanted to sound just like Dennis Brain. And then uh, when I read about Dennis Brain, he died in 1957 on September 1st. And three years later, on September 1st in 1960, another horn player was born, and that was me. <laughs> and um, so I always kind of likened myself to being the next Dennis Brain as a horn player. Uh, when I lived in uh, London last spring, I decided I wanted to find uh, Dennis Brain's grave. So I took a bus, went up to Hampstead, found the cemetery, and I thought, well, I'll find his grave. Well, there are 50,000 people buried there. And I wandered around looking at all the, all the stones and realized I wasn't going to find Dennis Brain's grave. Went up front and there was a bulletin board and it said 100 top people buried here. 
So I thought, well, I wonder if Dennis Brain's considered one of the 100 top people. And sure enough, he was. And so they had a map, and I found, found his, uh, his grave, which is really cool. Yeah, that's pretty neat. That's really neat. I'm, I'm going to spoil the moment by noting that you were wandering around in a cemetery looking for brains. That's right. That, that, <laughs> that, that, that works out real well. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, we, uh, we wanted to kind of gear this discussion a little bit towards composition because we know that you're a... Uh, you, you've composed quite a bit, mm -hmm. and you teach composition here at the school, and I know that's something that interests a lot of musicians. So uh, we, we kind of want to open into that, and I thought we might start by just discussing the things you need to know before you start composing, whether you need to know anything, if everybody can sit down and compose music, or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I do think that anyone can, can write a song. A anybody uh, with any kind of musical ear can write a song. Find, find you a text, a poem, something that's on your heart, something you're thinking about, and, and you can come up with a melody. If you play guitar, you can accompany yourself. And there are lots of good songwriters out there that do that very thing. Um, but I think that uh, there's another level of composition that the more you know, the, the better you'll, you'll be at it. And, and you, can, you can be a good composer writing classical art music, or you can be a composer writing jazz, or children's songs, or folk songs, or church songs, or, or rock songs, or wh whatever you want to do. I think there are lots of different uh, things you, you can write, but it is helpful to know something about about music uh, before you, you you jump in. So everyone can. The more you know, the better you'll be, and that's that's generally true. I think that's like a motto. That's been a, a motif in the last three podcasts yeah. we've done. Is you know, do you have to do this? Well, maybe <coughs> not, but will it be better if you do it? Yeah. 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 So uh, I think the first thing to do is is kind of decide what you want to write, what kind of music you want to write, and then listen to lots of that kind of music, whatever that is. That could be, it could be jazz, it could be country western, it could be art music, it could be Mozart or Beethoven, or it could be film scores or whatever. But w with the internet, you, can, you have access to all kinds of, of music that you can listen to, lots and lots of it. And listen and decide kind of your favorite kind of sounds, what you want to hear, what you like, what you don't like. Uh, there may be things that you don't want to, to write, and, and that's helpful, too, to decide, kind of limit yourself a little bit, what you, what you, what you don't like. Do, um, you, do you have any, uh, any services that you use for listening on the Internet in particular? Well, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed with YouTube now, so I listen to that, but we also have access to Naxos Music Library and Jazz, Naxos Jazz Music Library. So, so you're saying that um, what I can draw from this is that composition isn't... Um, and we've talked about this just a little bit with improvisation, um, that composition isn't necessarily you're making everything up off just out of nowhere, but in a sense that it's, um, you could kind of consider a lot of composition a form of imitation. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you listen to music and you just kind of develop a sound in your head, and maybe you could say that a lot of composition is more of a culmination of all of the music that you've kind of absorbed sure, sure. and how you want to reproduce you know, oh, oh, yeah. what you hear. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think all composers borrow from other composers' styles and, and sounds. There are only 12 notes in a chromatic scale. Uh, of course, you can do those 12 notes on throughout the range of, of music, high and low, loud and soft, fast and slow, and then when you add rhythm, there are zillions of combinations. But still, there are really only 12 notes in our Western scale. 
So, so there aren't that many choices of, of note combinations. So eventually, eventually, all music kind of can sound like another piece of music a little bit. So yeah, you can draw from all kinds of sources. It's illegal to uh, completely steal someone else's melody and claim it as their own. <laughs> Un- unless that melody is old enough. Yeah. You know, if it's pre-1923, you can steal whatever you want. You don't even necessarily have to add, attribute it. That's but true. You should. you should. Yeah, it's. Uh, I would consider it unethical to uh, write a Mozart symphony and, and call it the, the Tucker Symphony. <laughs> no, I, I, can, I can understand that. Yeah. People might call you out on that one. <laughs> Um, but but there, I think there are certain things that you got to know um, for music theory. <laughs> you need to, to know your, your keys, and and uh, there are there are of course twelve major major keys, but there are also as many minor keys and many forms of keys from that. So the the more you know about your keys, the better off you are. Some people latch onto a, a certain key that they just they feel like is their their favorite key. Uh, of course, if you're uh, a basic pianist, you might like the key of C because there aren't any black notes on it, and so you, you might write everything in the key of C. Or if you're a guitar player, you might say, well, I can play in the, in the key of D because you got a D chord, G chord, and A chord, and that's, that's cake. So, so pretty soon, all your music's in, in one key, and that doesn't give you enough variety uh, of sound. So it's good to know as many keys as you possibly can so you'll have the musical flexibility to change keys uh, often. So uh, when, you're, when you're talking about these different music theory fundamentals, what do you think is the best way to learn them? Because I would say that it's through learning to play an instrument. And some instruments more than others may be specifically for the desire for theory. But what, what do you think? Well, the old school way, and, and it's still probably the best way, is to be a, a pianist, uh, to use the piano as, as a springboard. And the reason for that is it covers the wide range. There are 88 keys on a piano, low and high. And so you'll learn your clefs that way. You'll learn bass clef and treble clef and be able to put your music together. And it gives you more variety of sound. Guitar is a real good instrument. It's got low sounds and high sounds, but it's all written in, in one clef. So it makes it a little bit challenging for people who want to, to write in two clefs. If, they're, if, they only, if the person only plays guitar, then they'll only be able to, to, to be well-versed in one clef. And that's a little bit challenging. But you can, you can compose music if you're a clarinet player or a trombone player or a drummer or anything. I mean, there, there are lots of tools at your disposal, learning all your keys and notes and clefts and all those things. So it's certainly possible. Mm-hmm. Where, okay, so backing up a notch, but maybe not. Say you got somebody who's kind of learning music, they're getting into it, they're diving in. Um, what, what would be, and, and maybe this is kind of a two-part, what do you think is the jumping off point for most people when they go, okay, I want to compose and now I'm composing? And kind of at the same time, a double question, what was that for you? What was that jumping off point for you where you decided, I'm going to do this? Well, it's kind of kind of funny, but when I was, I was, I played piano and then I later played French horn, but, but there was a composition contest and my piano teacher asked me if I want to enter it. And so... I, I think I was seven, but but it's hard to remember for sure. I may have been six, and so I I wrote a piece called. Can I remember the piano? Yeah, have you heard? Yeah, I wrote, sure. I wrote a piece called uh, the Weird Cave, which I think went something like this. 
impressed because uh, I won. And I think it's because I was just a little kid. <laughs> and uh, because when I think about that uh, piece of music, I think it's not very good. But it was called The Weird Cave, and, and that kind of prompted me to, to start writing more and more music. So I began to write music. I wrote through, through high school, and then I, I wrote uh, a lot in college, and I, I won a couple more contests. And then I wrote um, a very challenging trio for tenor, cello, and piano that, that had a jazz inflection. It was very complicated. And the performance was terrific. It was uh, my senior year, junior year, I can't remember, in college. And, uh, and nobody liked it. Everybody uh, hated it, in fact. Uh, and I had just got through winning a national, uh, I think I was third place, actually, in a national uh, composition contest for a saxophone piece I had written. And I'd written another duet that had, that had done real well, too. Uh, in fact, I got... I got some good comments from Alfred Reed. Uh, oh wow! I wish I'd saved it. He hand wrote a note and said, "Well, this is very, very good." Oh, that's so cool. But but anyway, I spent all this effort on this trio, and it was performed, and and everybody just didn't like it at all. And uh, it, it was one of those where where after it was over, people went like this, and the clapping died down fast. <laughs> And uh, I realized nobody liked this this piece, so I quit. I, I didn't write anymore for about three years. I just quit. Wow. Thought, well, that's it. I'm no good. That's that's uh, that's tough. Did uh, what what brought you back into it? Did you just kind of gradually come back into it, or uh, need? In fact, this a lot of people need to think about this. If there's a, if there's a functional need for a new piece of music, then then someone's got to write it. So if you're in church and, and you need a new song, or if you're in a group and there needs to be a song or, or, so, or a piece for some sort of purpose, then someone's got to write it. So when I was uh, teaching in Louisiana, um, the brass quintet we were in, we needed some, some new music because we didn't have anything. We, we couldn't afford to buy uh, music. So, so I just started writing again, and uh, and, and then, then after that, I've been writing off and on ever since. That's great. So um, what what do you think, you, you described your first writing experience as, I mean, it was positive, you won this competition, uh, but you don't like the piece. What do you think people should expect out of their first few attempts at composing music? I, I think that there are some amazing geniuses out there that They'll put something down and, and it'll be perfect and, and they'll hit a home run and, and they'll make a, a mint on it. Uh, but for, for most uh, regular people, the more you do it, the better you're going to be. And the first few times, you're just not going to be that good at it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that reminds me of a uh, Ira Glass quote that, that I really, really like. Ira Glass is a writer, really great storyteller. And um, he said, people always come up to me and ask me, you know, how do you become great at what you do? Why are you so great at what you do? How, how can I do that? And his big thing was um, just keep doing it. Output, 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 output. Just put out as much material as you can yeah. because the thing that got you into doing that thing in the first place was your taste. And you have really good taste in music in, in this particular example. You have great taste in music. It's just that when you get started, you're really disappointed in what you're doing because... What you're out, what you're putting out, is not up to your own taste. 
and you can you you see that and you understand that and it's really disappointing to you and the most important thing that you can do is just to keep going and eventually you'll develop those skills but everybody is below their own taste at the beginning yeah no no I, I, that's right the, the more you do it the better you're going to be and that's true in almost everything that you do yep. um, the, and and again there could be the occasional hit a home run just by accident but but for for most people that doesn't happen very often yeah. <laughs> uh, that reminds me uh, in little league there was this kid who uh, he would he would strike out and he was very awkward and he was just not a very good player uh, so one day he uh, closed his eyes and swung the bat and hit the ball and it went over the fence and he was I think he was eight years old and uh, but that was the last time he hit all year so that was <laughs> that was just an accident <laughs> and it probably won't happen as a composer <laughs> I like that. That's good. I, I know um, whenever I try to compose, there's like this excitement that you get about just getting notes down on paper that just you, you look there and you're like, oh, I wrote down those things. And then when you hear them performed, even if it's not great, there's still this yeah. excitement of, ooh, I made those things happen. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's great. You know, even when it's not great, it's still kind of fun. Mm -hmm. But I, th I think it's important to know the rules of music. The, the more rules you know, uh, the better you can follow those rules and, and know how it all works. But also, when you know the rules, it gives you an opportunity to break the rules. And the best songs are the ones that don't always follow the rules completely. But but Cole Porter, for example, we mentioned him earlier, a great great songwriter. He knew the rules. He he knew how music was supposed to go. But he chose to break the rules. And when he broke the rules, that's when the song really is, is fantastic. Uh, but he could only break the rules by knowing the rules in the first place. Mm -hmm. Would you say there's a, uh, a right and wrong way to break the rules? Like, like a rule on how to break the rules. Do those exist, do you think? Um, or is it more abstract than that? I, I think that you can't put restrictions on the human spirit and human creativity. So, so the, the, the more a human can think outside the box, to use a cliche that I don't really like, uh, the, the better the, that person is going to be, the more effective it's going to be. So whenever we're talking about rules, the things that we're talking about are understanding key signatures and different keys of music, how chord progressions tend to work, and uh, perhaps part writing rules come to mind real quick, mm -hmm. as in how should these different voices flow and go with each other. That's right. um, knowing those different things are those rules. And my understanding of these rules is that uh, these are the things that we tend to hear in music that we like. Is that it? Like these are aesthetic rules. Sure. This is, you know, yeah. this, this sounds pleasing to the ear, and that's why these rules are developed. Mm hmm more or less. So uh, when you're saying they're rules, they're, they're guidelines, but they're based off of, you know, all, all that's come before us in Western music. Sure. No, that's exactly right. Uh, something like the harmonic series is a natural series that exists in, in, in music and really in, in nature. And that is that you have a fundamental sound, a low fundamental sound, and then the next resulting sound in that through vibrations is actually an octave above that. And then when you keep going up and increasing your vibrations, the notes get closer and closer and closer. So you may decide as a composer that you like that harmonic series, but you're going to defy it. And you're going to defy it by putting all your close notes together way down low. Well, when you do that, you're going to get a, a grumbly uh, mess. Now, as a composer, you may like that grumbly mess, uh, 
and you may do it on purpose, but if you did your whole piece a big grumbly mess, then then uh, that may not be the sound that you want to do. Now Stravinsky and Beethoven, for example, broke the harmonic series, but they just did it occasionally whenever they wanted to. So they, they used it for an effect. For an effect. The right. idea that here we are, we're following these rules and going with them, then we break them and everyone goes, oh, they broke the rules, and then they go back to not breaking them. Sure, no, that's right. Yeah, and that just kind of goes with one of the basic um, uh, fundamental building blocks of music, which is just uh, tension and release. Sure. You know, yeah. you break those rules to create that tension, right. and then you come right back to them to create that harmonious release again. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the opening chord of Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms goes, and it's got this funny chord at the beginning, and it's jarring, and then... It makes you think the rest of it's going to be shocking like that, but in fact, it's it's a fairly tame piece in some ways. But his opening is not. It gets your attention real fast. I like that. That's pretty good. And uh, so tame, tame by Stravinsky standards. Exactly. That yeah. <laughs> That's a yeah. neoclassic standard. Didn't send people running out the room in riots. Right. No. No, <laughs> no rioting. No rioting. I like it. I think a, a lot of people, when they first start writing, they stick with major and minor chords. In fact, I think they just stick with major chords. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, I, supposedly 85% of songs are based on one, four, or five chords. Uh, yeah. and, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, as, as a composer develops, he begins to add, add more notes. So if you have a C major triad, C, E, G, and that's a happy chord, major chord, and that's well and good, uh, you might try adding a note to it, add a D to it. Uh, that spices it up a little bit. Add an A to it. Add a B to it. Add an F sharp to it. All, all these things uh, add a little more uh, variety to the sound. It's still the same chemical concept of a major chord, but it's got more stuff to it. So these are uh, harmonic extensions. Yeah, that's good. Just adding adding another note into the major chord to give it a slightly different flavor while maintaining sure. the same mm-hmm. color. It's the way yeah. a jazz piano player always approaches it. You know, they have their basic chord structure, but then they just decide what color do I want this chord to be, yeah, and then no, they just start throwing notes everywhere to the, to right. develop different colors and stuff. You know, at the beginning of Bohemian Rhapsody, when he's playing the B flat chord, he goes da 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 da, and then he adds a G to that chord, G da 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 G F, and and so he adds a sixth, and then the very next one is a G minor chord, and this time he adds an A to it. So he, he colors his chord right from the beginning. Freddie Mercury is a great musician. <laughs> Please know we are on a we are on a college campus and the dean of school of music talking about Freddie Mercury. <laughs> No, he's really a terrific musician. Oh yeah, fantastic! I love Freddie Mercury. Yeah, I don't know if Steven's so much into Queen or not. Hey, it's good stuff. I think Queen is one of the greatest bands of the '80s. Yeah, I'm learning that's hard to cover Queen because of well, the vocals. The vocals are so the range is so extreme. Who else can sing that? Stuff? No, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Same with Stevie Wonder. It's just really yeah. hard to cover that that stuff. Well, musically good. too. His music's not always so easy. But talking about vocal music, I, I think that every word has a, a natural rhythm to it, whatever that that word is. It could be, uh, you are you are on the sofa. 
you are on the sofa. And people say that. They may say it differently, slightly here and there, but it's got a natural rhythm to it. You are on the sofa. You are on the sofa. So if you did it like this, you are on the sofa. You are on the sofa. That would, that would sound funny, or you are on the sofa. And, and, and pretty soon, a, a, a word has a funny rhythm feel, uh, and, and a lot of composers don't think about the rhythm of the natural words, and they'll force a rhythm that doesn't work. I kind of want to go on a little bit of a sidetrack and we can come back, but it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite stories that you ever tell. What's that? I always think about that when I think about musical rhythm. I always think Jeremy Lewis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love that story. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Lewis story. I wrote a a piece of music where, um, in honor of a a young man who was killed in in an auto wreck, and, and what I did was I thought about his name, Jeremy Lewis, da 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 And I realized it could be in 7-8 uh, rhythm. da 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 Jeremy Lewis, Jeremy Lewis, da 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 So I just wrote a lot of it in 7-8 based on his name. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I like how you had to write that piece of music, though. Yeah, that was that was quite an, an adventure. That, yeah, that was a toughie. It all happened real quick. It did. It did. I had promised the family I would write this music, and I and I didn't get it done. And I so I called Jeremy's mother and I said, "I'm sorry, I, I didn't get this done." And and she got sniffy on the phone and, and she said, "I understand. You're busy." And so I said, "Yeah, I've been real busy. It was like a knife going in me." So. Over about three days, uh, I, I think I, maybe two days, I stayed up all night for a couple of nights and finished finished the piece. It's right. actually been one of my most successful pieces. Yeah, it was right before a band concert, too. It was. You, you had like three or four days to pump that it out. Was, it was fast. Yeah. And then performed it at the concert. Yeah, it was, it was furious writing. <laughs> yeah. That was one of the times in my life when I almost felt like I was having an out-of-body experience as a composer. I was writing at a breakneck speed where I wasn't totally aware of what I was writing. Oh, I you, sort you got, of, got in the zone. I got, yeah. I, I think Handel must have done that when he wrote Messiah. Really? You think so? Because there's so much. In 28 days, he finished this piece that's two and a half hours long. Yeah. And I, I think that every now and then a composer gets just inspired and... and just does that it doesn't happen often so when it does happen jump on it <laughs> do it it's like an instinct almost yeah. yeah yeah it was a good good feeling i remember that i you know i have those same experiences and you would all say it's kind of a composition experience but i have those same experiences sometimes playing jazz and soloing sure is that the the best soloing experiences and the best in the best uh, solos that have come out the end of my horn have always been those times where I'm really not in control of what I'm doing anymore, yeah. and it's it, it's like an instinctual level sure. of performing at that point. Yeah, and there's a lot of a lot of performers like that. Charlie Parker was like that. I think Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix was like that. That Harold guy, what's his name? Something Harold. He's a trumpet player, and he has severe schizophrenia. Oh, really? Yeah. Very famous jazz trumpet player. He's fantastic. It, it's it's weird because he's just crazy until the horn goes to his face. Oh, and then he totally transforms into it. And he's a great ballad player. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah. 
<clears throat> anyway, that's Keith, off Keith Jarrett when he was when he was playing a lot. Oh, yeah. Kind of got that way every now and then. You could hear it. He was just producing so much music at such a high level. It, he wasn't thinking about it; it was just happening for him. I kind of think Mozart was that way. I think Mozart was writing so well that he almost wasn't aware of everything he was doing. Well, and what's neat, I mean, as young as Mozart was introduced to music, and as intensive as it was through his early life, it, I mean, I must have been as natural to him as speaking in many ways. Yeah, no, I think it's true. Yeah, And we use Mozart as a, as a great example of a great composer, and there's no question that's true, but really the first few years, probably until he was over 20, most of his music's kind of predictable, normal. But then the last five years of his life, in his upper 20s until he died, are, are amazing. Just amazing. It's, it, he kind of follows that 10,000 hour rule that, that people talk about, that if you put 10,000 hours into something, you're gonna get good at it. And, and he did. Um, thing is, he started younger than most people. So he, he hit his 10,000 hours earlier yeah. than most people. Yeah. That's true. That's uh, I like that you say that because you're you're always fighting that. I feel like with both parents and young kids that are studying music, this idea that you know people just have it or they don't have it. That there's some type of magical element that makes you able to be Mozart. And you're right, Mozart. You know, was a child prodigy, but uh, you know he started really really young and put in ten thousand hours and was still a child at the end of. Sure. You know, a lot of that training. Yeah. <laughs> All the way to the end, really. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you look at a Mozart manuscript, which I did when I was in London, and there aren't any mistakes in it. He he didn't he yeah. didn't make he didn't change his mind. Yeah, the this summer I got to go to Mozart's house oh, yeah? that he lived in, um in uh Salzburg. His uh -huh. Salzburg house. And they had in there um and I got to sneak a picture of it. You're not supposed to take pictures in there, but I snuck a picture of his very first composition. Um, that it was in his hand. I mean, it was the one that he wrote. And I was looking at it, and that's one of the things that I noticed. Yeah, is that it was just written out. Yeah, and there there were only scratch outs, and it was in pen. You know, it was in ink. Yeah, and it was just written there. Yeah, and that just blew my mind. Like he was, you know, what was he three? Whereas. <laughs> Beethoven on the other side was just a sloppy mess and he changed his mind. He'd scratch through something, he'd draw a line, he'd, he'd circle something and he'd say, use this over here. And, and he was just always changing. He'd, he'd uh, scratch through 18 measures and rewrite it. And uh, Mozart didn't rewrite. What Mozart put down is what he, he stuck with. But Beethoven never could quite decide what to do. He was always changing his mind. So I want to bring this back around to a place where the we're relating to the listeners a little bit more. When I and I don't do this very often, but when I try and write music, I find myself in that position. Um, I'm I'm very much an all or nothing type person, and so whenever I jump in and start writing something, and I feel like that it's not up to par and it's not good enough, I get frustrated and I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite, and then I just quit and I come back to it later, and I'm just. It, it never becomes what I want to want it to become, and so I never feel like I come out with a finished product. Um, how how do people deal with that? How should people deal with that? Most most people, most young composers have too many ideas, to, and they feel like they they're trying to put every idea they've ever had. Uh, it's like a a, a a preacher or a speaker, and he, he's got. 
15 things that he wants to get across. And so he just sits there and delivers one thing after another, one new idea, one new idea, and pretty soon nobody remembers any of them. And, and then the speech is a disaster. But the best speeches are the ones that have about three main ideas. And, and a good piece of music really has about, about three main ideas. In fact, one of my most successful pieces I ever wrote, uh, people afterwards caught me and said, man, I really like that. Uh, you know, I, I understood the melody. And, and I said, that's because it only had one theme. And it did, it had one idea. I wrote a, a five or six minute piece on one idea. And so I'm, I'm guessing in your case that you might have had too many ideas and you had trouble getting them all organized. Mm -hmm. uh, it's better to do more with less. And, and I, think, I think if you'll reduce mm -hmm. some of your ideas and prolong, prolong the good and get rid of the bad, you'll probably be more successful. Man, that's, everything keeps going back to playing music in my brain. Being a jazz improviser, you know, it's... I guess it's really a lot the same process. And and I went through a revelation about two years ago. I was on YouTube watching a interview with Bill Evans and his brother. Hmm. Um, Bill Evans' brother was a band teacher in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, New Orleans. And they were just sitting there discussing things, and he was talking about young improvisers. And the short of it was is that young improvisers are playing too many notes. They're trying to get all their ideas out all at once. They're throwing <laughs> yeah. all their cookies on the table. Yeah. And the problem with that is that they're... Their chops are going faster than their brains can handle, and they sure. can't organize their thoughts. They can't, or and they don't. Uh, they just come out with all these run-on sentences, and no, nobody can understand what they're playing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the exact same thing. And then sure. if you could just back up, play things that you understand, mm -hmm. take an idea, latch on to it, mm -hmm. mess with that idea, kind of, kind of play with it for a while, and just don't get in a hurry. Mm -hmm. um, that you'll start to play better, and you'll start to play more intelligent. Man, the moment that I took that. And started doing that um, as a player. My soloing just took a whole new turn. Sure, no, and that's true. I started hearing it from other players I was playing around, like in TJO. They were saying, "Man, you're I don't, I don't know what you did, but yeah. we really like listening to you a lot oh, more." Yeah. All of a sudden, what yeah. happened? And all yeah. it was was I was just backing up and trying not to do so much, just being a simpler yeah. musician. Every time I work with a young composer, not maybe not every time, but almost every time. Within five or six measures, they've given me, I don't know, eight or nine different ideas in just a few measures. Uh, I don't remember. Did you do that? Oh, yeah. No. We, we totally had this conversation. Oh, we did? Okay. I, 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 took right. a semester, <laughs> I took a semester of conversation with Dr. Tucker, and yeah, I, I did a woodwind quintet, and it was the most unrealistic thing ever written. You know, you're right. It, it had 5,000 <laughs> ideas in it, and that was just the first movement. And then, uh, then the the range is like I mean I'm a clarinet player and I couldn't play my clarinet part man yeah. that was a yeah and a yeah. lot a lot of young players think if it's difficult then that's good that makes it good mm. and that's it could be that a difficult piece is a good piece but also it doesn't just because it's difficult doesn't make it good <laughs> this is this is a I, I have a Sammy Nestico's book. Oh yeah, on yeah, jazz yeah. arranging. It's I a love. Great it. Oh, it's great. I got and it. It's signed by him. It is. Yeah. I, I got it off Amazon, and you, I mean, it was expensive. This book cost me like a hundred bucks, but yeah. it's it's a huge, big bound volume, and it is. It's autographed, and so that's pretty cool. But uh, he he talks about that. Uh, he he says that. What are we talking about? Difficulty of yes. Music. He says that. <laughs> sorry. That's right. I got excited about my book. Um, all right. He he says that. Um, 
you know, that what you really need to do is understand the things that are easy for an instrument. Because when you write for an ensemble and they play your piece of music and everyone can play it, it sounds a lot better it's than if you write better. a piece of music and half the parts aren't playable. It's just, yeah. you know, yeah. that difficulty, it's no correlation other than the easier it is, the better it's going to sound when people play it. And, and you can hear that in his charts too. You can. Man, he has some of the most playable charts but yet, professional bands will oh, just sure. want to play them over and over and over because they swing the hardest. It's like Count Basie has a lot of stuff like that too. But mm -hmm. and speaking of which, you got to know your what instrument you're writing for. If you're writing for for clarinet, uh, there are certain things a clarinet can do, and they'll do well, and other things that that they don't do uh, very well. And I think a lot of people forget what an instrument can and can't uh, do. Would, would you say that's gotten a lot worse when people are composing on finale and yeah because uh, finale allows you to do anything if, if if you want a trombone to to do a trill on a low C to to a D flat uh, you can write that on finale and and but, it'll it'll even sound on the finale you can play it back and say I really like <laughs> so then you hand it to the tr trombone player and say, I want a trill there. And the trombone player looks at you <laughs> like you've fallen off Mars or something. Uh, or or if you may you may ask a, a flute player, well, I want that, that low uh, C uh, fortissimo uh, 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 with, in 16th notes. Da, 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 da. And, and, uh, and it sounds cool on finale. And the flute player just stares at you because it's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. If there's any confusion, of course, Finale is a computer music notation program with playback properties. So you type in your music, you hit play, it plays it back. But uh, sometimes you can be unreasonable and still hear it playback on the computer. So you really need to know what every instrument can and, and can't do and bring out the best in the instrument, not, not the worst. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I guess you got to know... Um, who you're writing for as far as ability level goes. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's tricky because um, you you if you're writing a commercial piece, which most people you know are not going to be doing on their first compositions, but if you're in that situation, then you're probably going to be writing for a group of players that all have the same ability level. But if you're writing for your church, you may be writing for people of lots of different ability levels. And mm -hmm. so knowing those people, not only what their instruments can do, but what those specific musicians can do would enhance your piece of music and probably shape it. Oh, yeah. yeah. You definitely got to write for who's, who, who's going to perform your music. That's for sure. <laughs> um, before, I have like a hundred things that I could just, that we could all just kind of run off on a million different tangents. But... I wanted to ask you at least once, you know, is, is there anything in this podcast that you just really want to get across? You just say, man, this this is the stuff that people really need to know that they don't understand. I remember when I was in, in college, um, I and I was, I was writing music, but I felt like there was something wrong with me because I'd sit in class and I would daydream and I'd look outside and I... I was I was just in an imagination world a lot of times and I, and I thought there was something wrong with me because I felt like my friends weren't weren't the same way and Francis Macbeth who died a couple of years ago and a very fine composer and well respected in the band world he came to talk to us and and he he looked at uh, all all of us interested in composing and he said he said those of you who sit around daydreaming and imagining things and and creating in your mind 
keep doing that because that's what's going to help you the most. And I suddenly felt like it was okay. It was okay for me to be daydreaming. Uh, you know, my ADD uh, was a problem occasionally in the classroom, but it also has helped me a lot too because it's allowed me to, to think creatively. And so I would really encourage anyone listening to think creatively as a musician. Think, think, think beyond what you normally see and, and touch and hear and think through your imagination. So are you saying that ADD makes the best composer? <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to say that. That same ADD is something you got to control if you have that problem, of course. Uh, but it, it doesn't make you a, a pariah of the world either. It can, you use it to your advantage when you need to. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a, a question, I guess. Um, a question that I was going to ask you is about influences that you've had in your life and on the topic of ADD. Right across from me, I'm staring at a bookshelf and I see lots of albums that I can't see the titles to, but I'm looking at these books and the titles of these books are just cracking me up. And it's you. <laughs> it has you all over it. The Praise and Worship fake book. Yeah. Barry Manilow. Jerome Kern. Sure. <laughs> Gospel songs. Yeah. Jazz standards. Uh, Jerry Herman. Eagles, American folk. I mean, I'm looking at all this stuff. Just you have one of the most eclectic tastes in music Mm. of anybody that I've ever known, especially for your skill level. You know, most people, Mm. um, as they become great musicians, they they tend to become very specialized in what they do, but also in their taste. Um, And you you have definitely taken the opposite approach to that. Yeah, I don't know if it's good. Always. Would you say that for you as a composer that um, has helped you in just introducing so many ideas into your brain that your output has so much more potential? Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I'm able to write really in any any style that I want to. I can write praise and worship. I can write jazz. I can write rock, uh, pop. I can write serious classical. I've written 12-tone music. Uh, written experimental uh, things. Uh, uh, I've written Broadway style uh, and 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 serious kind of classical style. So so yeah, in that respect, I, I suppose I draw from lots of sources. But but what it also has done is uh, allowed me to be well versed with virtually anybody that comes into my office that has an interest in music. There uh, very rarely will someone come in interested in something in music that I don't know something about. That, that, that probably serves you well as the Dean of Fine Arts. Um, I think it probably <laughs> confuses the music faculty. <laughs> <laughs> they want you to like one thing. And just sure. Board. That's right. It's also made me a little bit judgmental about music. Just because it's classical doesn't make it good. And just because it's pop doesn't make it bad. Or vice versa. There, there's good pop music and there's, there's good classical music and there's bad pop music and bad classical music and so so I've sort of become real discerning in my eclecticism mm-hmm. you just had a faculty member leave Howard Payne that um, I had some really fascinating discussions with on that particular subject about good and bad music and what people prefer and what they don't prefer and sure. even just the definitions of oh this is good music and this is bad music mm-hmm. um, that music is such an abstract form that you really can't place those limitations on it to begin with and that's probably right. That's that's probably it's probably unfair to be too judgmental about it all the time. But even though it's it's hard, yeah. I know I have my music that I just go no, that is not music. 
and I, I lean toward liking music that has a little more interest to it than just three chords over and over uh, and, and has some rhythmic interest. And that's another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is, is rhythm. I think a lot of composers forget uh, the, the value of what rhythm can do. You know, when John Williams went, bum, bum, da, 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 that triplet added a whole lot of interest to that. If he had just gone, bum, 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 bing, bum, bum, it wouldn't have had the same power. But da, 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 a triplet is, is a powerful rhythm. And, and really, he kind of transformed all of film music. And, and Star Wars is still loved by everyone. And I think it's that triplet that makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, John Williams, man, he's, he's just one of the most... He gets a lot of flack in the academic world and in the composition world by a lot of people. I, th- I think the guy um, was just absolutely amazing mm-hmm. and innovative no, in, in the way that he did a lot of things. And um, even, you know, there's a great story about when he wrote Jaws. And, you know, he walks into Spielberg's office and he says, I've got it, I've got the theme. And he walks up to piano and he's just going, uh, 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 uh. oh yeah, I'm not supposed to hit the table. Yeah. <laughs> he's just hitting two notes on the keyboard over and over and over and Spielberg was just totally confused by it had yeah. no idea and John Williams said just wait once you see this in context you're going to love yeah. it and start coming and, and sure enough those two notes man <laughs> sure no it's very it's very true. powerful and, and that, that that's another that's another rhythmic thing it starts out slow mm-hmm. and it gets faster and then it, it leads to it leads to the shark bite oh. so here, here's an interesting <laughs> question um, I think and boy this really uh, I'm going. I'm going to do a podcast on this subject right here when it comes to jazz soloing. But when it comes to music and composition, I I feel like that um, people who are getting started in fields like this. They tend to be focused on just certain aspects of music. Um, and I think in composition, most people would be concerned with melody and harmony, sure. sounding pretty, sounding good, stuff like that. And I, I think that um, we tend to forget. There's so many aspects to music to pay attention to. Um, what are those? Well, I, I think uh, I think the emotion of, of what you're trying to say is really of supreme importance in in all of music, whatever that is. And so some people some people need a, a story in their minds to to write something, uh, and and that could be. When I wrote the piece in Jeremy Lewis, I was I was full of the grief and anguish of, of the loss of, of a student and and uh, how to express that in some sort of way. Uh, another successful piece I wrote, a guy uh, called me and said, I, "I need a drum feature that's fun and light and kind of kind of silly." So I just started imagining party hats and fun things, and I wrote a funny little chromatic thing. It was very successful. In fact, I think it went to state uh, and. Uh, and so for me, it's, it's the emotion of the moment or, or the situation that brings out the music. And I think everybody's like that. You know, if you're writing a love song, you don't, you don't want it to be a silly little chromatic, uh, funny thing. Neither do you want it to be full of grief and anguish. It needs to have a certain kind of character to it. If you're writing uh, uh, something about uh, your puppy that you love, um, then that should have a certain kind of sound, or or if it's stormy outside and and you're you're scared, that's going to have a certain uh, kind of a emotion to it, also. So so I, I think that that music's got to have some emotional uh, content to it. All all music. So you're saying maybe as, as looking at the starting out composer, um, 
one, one of the important things that they really need to latch on to from the beginning is that when they start to write, they've got to have something mm-hmm. to hold on to, some sort of purpose, some sort of this is what the song's going to be about. Maybe, maybe not even something necessarily that's programmatic, like I'm going to write a story, I'm going to write about this specific subject of this specific object or person or thing in my sure. life, but maybe even just an emotional idea or just something. Sure, you got to have something to say. Some people say it through words. Some people say it through actions. Some people uh, say it through drawing. Uh, but for a musician, he's, he's, he or she says it through music. And, and say, it, say what's in your heart. Say it through music. Whatever, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Rule number one right there. Yeah. Say what, what it is. But again, I, I don't want to minimize the... I, I want to emphasize the importance of imagination and expression and communication and, and the power of emotion for sure. But also it's real important to, to know your stuff. Know, know how to use the tools in the toolbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about those more mechanical um, devices, you know? Like, like we talked about, you know, there's harmony, melody, and there's rhythm. But um, what, what are some other devices that beginners can start to use in their composition that maybe they're just not thinking about yet? I mean, dynamics ones that come to mind real quick. Sure, articulation, dynamics, and, and all that. Don't, don't, don't be afraid of the rest. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people think you have to have constant sound, but, but a rest, a well-placed rest, is, is just as meaningful as sound a lot of times, I think. Um, a great preacher, when he's preaching, he'll pause occasionally and let things soak in and then he'll move forward with what he's going to say and that and music needs to do that too so don't be afraid of the rest don't be afraid of the of the big unison moments sometimes people think that you the the more the thicker the music is the better it's going to be but a well-placed unison when i heard Bruckner's seventh symphony when i was in london uh, he's got this huge long section of unison it's just wonderful music and it's just everybody doing doing the the unison and don't be afraid of the homophonic moment. That is when everyone has the same rhythm together. Uh, that's an effective uh, thing to do. Um, um, polyphony means many sounds. And polyphony is, is a, a great effective tool to use uh, whatever you're writing for, choir, band, uh, jazz, whatever. Uh, but uh, homophony, uh, same sound at the same time, is also a pretty powerful tool. Um, I love contrary motion, where 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 one one group is coming downward, uh, descending passage, and another group or sound is is going upward at the same time. I love I love contrary motion. Yeah, I really do, especially in this in the bass. Sure, moving bass and having the right melody line move against. It. I don't know why, I just, my ear always clings to that for some reason. Yeah, I should use that whenever I if I write. But you need to start writing. Maybe go write something. When yeah. you're young, you learn not to do parallel motion, but parallel motion is is also very effective. Uh, also, in a lot of composers has its own word, even. Sure. The planing. Planing, yeah. You know, Stravinsky used that real well in Petrushka. Uh, so uh, all these things, the more the more you listen and decide what you wanna what you wanna do, and then don't be afraid of that magical moment that happens in music, uh, in Rhapsody in Blue. Uh, Gershwin heard a clarinet player. Was this you telling me this? Or was that you? I don't. I would guess it would probably be him, but I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know what you're He's talking about. He's a clarinet player. Right. I heard a clarinet player in the back just goofing around on the music. It went da 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 And he heard someone just warm me up going. And he said, oh, that's what I want to do. Do that. So he liked And so it happened that way. Taking those sounds around you. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about, um, it one one quick thing, do you compose on an instrument? Do you compose at the piano, or do you compose with pen and paper? Do you compose at a computer? What what's your setup? Uh, I compose at the computer using Finale, and I, I'm well versed in Finale, but I'll only do about I'll only do eight to sixteen measures before I'll run to the piano and check it, and and give myself some more ideas. So I keep a piano pretty close at hand. Has it always been that way? Uh, just about, yeah. Uh, and then I keep my horn close by, or every now and then a guitar. So I, I like to keep an instrument, uh, a real instrument near me, <laughs> so it's not just a, a computer-generated thing. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a, for me, it becomes a mental exercise, and I want it to be an expressive exercise. I, I have to write music expressively. N not just cognitively. How do you feel about, I guess it's kind of the same thing, how do you feel about the sampling technology that's coming out? I mean, they're getting better and better by the year, and you know, that stuff works in conjunction with writing programs now like Finale, where um, if they don't know what I'm talking about, um, live sampling is where they record instruments in live, and then they make them to where they can be used with these MIDI programs so that whenever you write music into this program, it sounds very, very realistic because it's essentially being played back by real instruments. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating uh, what all you can do with technology these days. It, it does sort of circumvent the live performer uh, a little bit. You can sample. I heard a guy, I was hanging around a guy that uh, was into sampling and he got excited about a cricket and he said, wow, listen to those crickets. We went outside, we sampled the crickets and he he put that into his piece. Well, I liked it too. I thought that was very cool. But then I got to thinking later, what if you're doing a piece, you can't you can't bring in a bunch of crickets and say, chirp. So, <laughs> so you, you know, you got to use a recording and it doesn't seem to have quite the same impact. On right. Do you, do you think that for you as a composer, would that, have just having that, would you think that helps you or hurts you? Uh, I, I love the variety of sounds that are that are out there, but I also try to keep in mind the human being. So uh, I guess in a way, all the all the options. It's kind of like when you go to a movie store and you're going to check out one movie to rent, and you look and there's there's two hundred thousand movies, uh, and and you sort of get overwhelmed. And, and sampling is a little bit like that. It can it can overwhelm you, and sometimes if you have too many things at your disposal, uh, th that's going to complicate your life. So I guess in the end, I think it's harder on a composer, all the sampling op options. It's still fun, but it makes it harder in a way, because everything's at your at, available to you. <laughs> yeah, through sampling. So I, I guess you would encourage what I hear encouraged a lot, and that is to um, try to write for instruments that can be performed that are in your life. So if you know a piano player, then write for a piano. Sure. If you know a trombone player, write for a trombone. Don't mm -hmm. write for people that won't, you know, that you don't have nearby to actually perform it. Yeah, and, and man, teaching public school is a great opportunity because you know friendships change a lot, particularly in junior high. So there might be two flutes 
and a, and a, a snare drum, uh, and they're all best friends. They do everything together, and so so you look on the catalog. You can't find a flute duet accompanied by snare drum anywhere. So write it, write one, and and so there's a great opportunity for, and they'll they'll play it. They'll be excited. They'll get to to do music that's written for them. And you, as a composer, have written something that's kind of cool. My uh, my last job, I was working at a small school, and the group that I had in my high school was 15 students. And there aren't a lot of ensembles for those particular 15 students. And then full band pieces are written for 80. So there's there was nothing in between. So I was constantly writing and arranging for this group. And so just by doing that and having to do it yeah. on a weekly basis, it improved what I was doing a lot. And you get to hear your music that way. Mm-hmm. How many times do we write music and it never gets to be performed? But if you write it for real people playing real instruments, they'll do it. You get to hear it. It's a trip. Pretty good. Yeah, it's always exciting to get to play music um, that's fresh and new to the world. Yeah. You know, I've always had those experiences. When I play new music, it's just really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you know whether it's something that's written by a student on a recital or something like that for a composition, or whether it's written by um, just a great composer, you know, I've been on both sides mm-hmm. of that, and um, it's always exciting, regardless. Well, all that choral music on the wall that that I wrote, uh, I've written other choral pieces, and I'll show them to the choir director, and and he's not quite as interested because they've been performed before or they're written for someone else, but he loves having a new piece written. For, for the choir here. And, and he gets pretty excited about that. So you're right. Mm-hmm. You're right. Something about the new, the freshness of it. Yeah. You know, in uh, TJO, we had a piece written for us by Gordon Goodwin. Oh, yeah, really? That That's was cool. really, really neat. It was a good piece? Yeah. It was really cool. Well, he's a great he's a great writer. It was really cool. Yeah. Just, just that experience of, you know, bringing this music to the world. But he's a great example of a writer that chooses one or two ideas and expands on it for a whole piece. Mm-hmm. He does that really well. He doesn't have too many things in one one great piece. Well, and that's uh, he's got some pretty playable charts too. He does, yeah. yeah. And he's got some hard ones too. Yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> both he's, sides of the realm. He's writing for the best musicians in the world. Sure. <laughs> he has some of the best players there are in his bands. I do think for uh, like junior high or beginner level music, it's hard to be just overly creative uh, because of ability, and then we've we've fallen into the key of B flat as the preferred key, and so if if you're writing everything in B flat on pentatonic scales over time, it's all going to sound the same if you're not careful. It's, you, you, you almost have to be a better writer to be creative for younger students. Absolutely, you know that's that's a frustration that um, I, I've spent a lot of time in my life talking to a lot of band directors and. Yeah. small school directors especially 1A2A directors that's a big frustration for them picking yeah. music for their kids that's both playable and interesting to them mm-hmm. because uh, like on the PML list there's a handful of pieces that fit that mold but and, I, that's, I, and that's it you know? I think that's getting better it I, is I've it is found more and more pieces that are written for groups uh, of you know lower levels that are actually really great pieces yeah. that they've decided to become more harmonically rich even though the ranges are limited and even though some of the rhythmic ability is limited of younger players I'm hearing some really neat stuff yeah there's a lot of new composers budding out right now that are doing some great that's work. good that's good yeah I like well do you that. do you have some do you have some thoughts that you kind of want to close with um, uh, let me see you, you, you had a great Let's list cover. here that was good Cover things. Uh, I would really encourage people to to have a good baseline. Um, seems to me the best music, the best songs, 
it has they have a strong baseline. I know Michael Jackson when he wrote his songs, he would kind of write his baseline first. I, I I've never done it that way, but too often people just put everything in root position first, uh, the root root position, uh, and and everything sort of sounds the same. So don't be afraid to try different bass lines. Uh, uh, I've got Elton John book over there, and his bass lines are fascinating. He he, he'll start things in different keys with different bass lines. So I, I think that's uh, pretty important. And Stevie Wonder. Uh, St- yeah, Stevie One Wonder's... One of my favorites in that regard. Yeah, just not afraid to try different inversions uh, over and over. Uh, and, and I like that a lot. Um, te- texture in instrumental music is important. If you try different combinations of instruments, it could be... At first, you may say, well, I want my flutes and clarinets to play together, but maybe try a flute and a trombone together. Or maybe try a, a clarinet uh, and a, a French horn. Uh, or, or maybe try a, a piccolo with, with uh, a saxophone. And so texture can really give a lot of variety of sound, I think, to music. I think too often we, we latch on to the same uh, timbres all the, all the time. So... Uh, use use different uh, timbre uh, combinations to give yourself some better textures in, in the music. Um, and percussion, keep in mind that on percussion, uh, you don't have to just use cymbal, snare drum, bass drum. Uh, anything that's struck is a percussion instrument, and they love playing exotic instruments. And, and so don't be afraid to try different percussion kind of instruments uh, around the band hall. They're, there's a great way to, to engage people in, in the process to give yourself more interesting sounds. I think that that's pretty important. Um, so that's kind of my list, more or less, that, that I said. Uh, if in doubt, uh, I've had students that had no idea. They just had they had a blank piece of paper, and they, they felt like their brains were blank and everything's a blank. So I've said, well, heck, write a pentatonic melody. You know, that, that, that'll get you started in... If you don't know what that is, you can go to the piano and play the black keys on the piano, and that's a pentatonic melody. But there are lots of great melodies. Jesus Loves Me, Amazing Grace. Uh, lots of great melodies out there based on pentatonic scale. You can't Sir go wrong Duke. with that. Sir Duke, yeah. <laughs> can't go wrong with pentatonic. So it's a five-tone melody, and, and uh, it's always singable. Uh, uh, people enjoy hearing it. It's a great way to get started. That's good. And so I guess what you really need to do if you're actually serious about this is actually you know put pen to paper or start typing or just start making music. Just start doing yeah. it and it can only get better. There's a free program. Uh, it's, it's kind of basic, but it'll get you started in Notepad. Yep, Finale Notepad. Yeah, and you can download it for free and get started. Write, write yourself some music. There, there's a more advanced version uh, that will do more things called MuseScore. Mm-hmm. That's an open source program. Uh, which I've attached links with this podcast. So you can get to both of those programs um, through this website. Uh, MuseScore is a good program, but it's a lot harder to use. But it can do uh, more things than what Notepad does. It can do everything uh, the actual full version of Finale does. It just isn't quite as pretty, and it's a little harder to maneuver. But still a cool program. So check those out. Sure. And if in doubt, you feel like you're not a good pianist, but go to a piano and just experiment and close the door and just make some noise and, and try different sounds and, and it's just fun. Making music's always fun. It's great. I like that. Um, Dr. Tucker, let's see. I, I want to pitch a couple of your things real quick. You do have a blog. Yes? I do. And uh, what's the address of your blog? drtucker.blogspot.com 
drtucker.blogspot.com. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you've written a book recently. I have. And do you want to mention the book real quick? Yeah, it's right over there. I guess can't show it, but uh, it's called <laughs> Like a Crown, uh, Adventures in Autism. It's a, it's a, kind of a chronicling of raising an autistic child from, from birth to uh, adulthood and all the joys and challenges that go with that. And there's a little bit, there's funny stories and there's sad stories and there's exciting stories and scary stories and just a little bit of everything in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. It's a good book. I, I read it. It's yeah. a good book. I'm writing a, another book. Uh, gosh, I can't believe I want to say this in public, but I am writing another <laughs> book. Uh, and I think it's going to be called The Clash of Cultures. And that is the, the culture of the academically sophisticated elite clashing with the entertainment world. And, and and the world that's out there, and oh, I like uh, that. that sounds like another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's my eclecticism of of how I love Elton John as much as I do uh, Mozart, and how those two concepts can clash with each other, and and how an acoustic world uh, clashes with a plugged in world, and, and what that means uh, in in the, the music world. So, well, that sounds great. So we'll check those things out, and we'll keep up on the progress with that. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you. Yeah, and, and, it's been fantastic. Yeah, good, good podcast. So uh, thank you for being us. Well, hopefully we'll come see you again before too long. My pleasure. All right. Well, yeah. uh, you guys have a good day and uh, keep practicing. Yep. Yeah, thanks, guys. Bye.